today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. Again, it continues uh, the investigation into what exactly did happen and what went down in Greektown uh, the other day. Of course, uh, two people dead, an 18-year-old woman uh, as who was, uh, as well, ready to attend the fall uh, program for nursing at McMaster University. A 10-year-old still yet to be uh, identified at this point, 13 uh, as well injured in that shooting. Let's bring in Jason Chapman, executive producer, 640 Toronto, who's been following this story. Jason, thanks for the time. Uh, we appreciate this. Any more word on any of these victims, their conditions whatsoever? No, Scott, it's a great question. But as of right now, none of the hospitals have provided us with an update. Uh, I know we've got a couple of reporters working on that angle. Uh, Shalima Maharaj from uh, Global News Toronto is working on that. She's talking, I mean, essentially what's happening right now is a number of the people in the area have been identified as high school students who went to a school uh, on the border of Toronto and Scarborough, Malvern Collegiate. And uh, the reporters today are spending their time speaking to some of the teachers who are making themselves available. Some of the, 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 the teens that were on the Danforth on Sunday night, they suffered injuries that were very minor. And then we were, we're hearing that a couple of them suffered quite serious injuries. But I don't have an official word from the hospital, whether critical, which means they're fighting for their life, or serious, which means they may even be recovering. So, you know, this evening, certainly on, on Global News Toronto, uh, the reporters will have an update there. And we're just waiting for, I mean, basically the spokespeople from the hospitals provide updates when they can. So far, nothing today. Uh, any word why, and, and, and again, we're just doing our job here, why we have not had uh, an identification on the second victim, the 10-year-old? I, I don't know, Scott. I mean, she's 10, and the family may very well have said, we're not ready for this. You know how it is. The second the name gets out, uh, family can say, reporters, please don't contact us. Reporters will contact them. So I don't, I don't know exactly. I mean, we've heard that this... Uh, Little girl's dad was also hit by a, a bullet. We heard that he went to St. Mike's Hospital, which is downtown Toronto. And we hear that the faculty, the, the, the doctors and nurses there said, we're going to release you to Sick Kids Hospital to go and try and say goodbye to your little girl. Uh, this family is going through so much, Scott, that I, yeah. I, I think that's probably a pretty good reason why this dad is recovering from being shot hmm. and had to say goodbye to his little girl, man. So, Yeah, that's terrible. Uh, what do we know more? Uh, do we know anything more uh, about the shooter? Uh, obviously, the family is uh, revealing that he suffered from mental illness. Yeah, so 29-year-old Faisal Hussein is uh, the man that we're talking about. And at this point, there's all sorts of speculation out there, Scott. I, we, I mean, the speculation is sort of irresponsible in some ways in some published forms in my opinion uh there's some speculation that he was on the police's radar then there's other speculation that he's not known to people at all uh, uh, to police at all so officially no i mean we have heard from his friend that certainly it sounds like he suffered from depression and mental illness and that goes along with a statement released by the family yesterday that said his entire life he struggled with that well, I've also heard clips, uh, 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 interviews of, uh, of people who were friends with him who said he lived a double life. Like, he had no idea that this was a complete surprise. Of course it's a surprise that somebody would do this. 
you know, those dealing with depression, they said, of course, we never saw this coming. Um, but officially from police, nothing new, nothing to say, yes, he was connected to uh, some sort of organization connected with terror. Nothing to say that he wasn't that. Um, so Catherine McDonald, who is a crime specialist for Global News Toronto, is working all of her sources. But even off the record, and I wouldn't report it, but I'll tell you this, there's nothing off the record yet that has come by my desk just one way or the other. So hmm. he's a 29-year-old man um, who died on the Danforth after unleashing a whole bunch of terror uh, uh, on Sunday evening. Uh, the shooter, as we look at and the various video clips that have come in, it, it looks like he had some experience, just the way in which I know m- many have said he certainly, certainly didn't look like an expert, but the way that he reloaded and, 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 and fired the gun with, with relative ease, it looked like he had some experience. Did anybody know, any of his friends, or have you heard anything, that he had any experience with guns or what his experience was with guns? No, one of the experts, uh, there's a great read on globalnews.ca, basically said, it looks like this guy knew what he was doing. It looks like he may have self-taught himself. But he, as far as he can tell, uh, there's, uh, there's no formal training behind there. The friends haven't commented on that at all, but here's what's being asked. And I'm sure you, this is, it, it's a huge conversation, Scott, is how did a guy whose family said he's dealt with mental health his entire life yeah. how did he get a how did he get this hand done exactly um, and you know uh, something that is uh, I, I was surprised Scott. maybe you're not surprised but there's a bunch of number of tributes that have popped up on the danforth uh just danforth strong messages mm. uh love and support to the the two young girls who lost their lost their lives in the middle of all of that, and, and much more prolific than I would have guessed, are lots and lots of handwritten messages like this. Connection between psych drugs and mass murders. There is a company called, and I don't know what the name of it, that, that provides these drugs. Psychic drugs were made for profit. And there's message after message after message about that that suggests that, you know, read the side effects of therapy drugs. Hmm. Violent ideation here it was and if you do a quick google search scott it's not hard to find that that, that, that people suggesting that drugs used to treat mental illness are over prescribed it opens itself into this huge conversation uh and i'm just i was surprised to see it playing out so close to where this happened so close to where two young girls lost their lives and so um quickly after the tragedy Again, as you said, uh, police must be focusing and investigators must be focusing on how a man with uh, such reported mental illness came close to a gun and, and again, got the experience to seemingly know how to use it. Uh, That has to be a big part of this investigation, no? Especially with the gun chatter in Toronto of late? Yeah, Scott, just repeat your first question for me. Just cut out for a second. Just repeat the question. Sorry about that. I, I mean, you know, considering that this man, the family talks about him having mental illness and he has dealt with mental illness all of his life and obviously had a gun in some way and, and knew how to use it, this has to be a big part of this investigation and culminating with the dis- larger discussion that's going on in Toronto about yeah. guns in general. I, I mean, this has to be a big part of the, the investigation. It, how did this guy end up with be. a gun? Like, it's got to be. Now, again, remember that there's two, there are two investigations happening right now. The, the Special Investigations Unit is investigating 
at whether or not the police officers brought this guy down, and then police are investigating the this. So we haven't got a lot of information because those two organizations are saying we can't really comment, we can't really comment because that's under investigation by another arm. So I, yeah, it's got to be it's it's going to be a like I'm sure that through search warrants, police officers are searching uh, what they have. We we heard this yesterday that search warrants were executed at this man's house. So you try to find evidence of how did you get the gun, all that sort of thing. So, yeah, it's, it's huge. It's central for the investigation. Interesting um, inter- interesting point also, Jason, that came out uh, earlier today. I mean, we always just assume, you know, the biggest problem uh, as far as guns in Toronto is that they're coming from the United States and that 90% of all guns uh, that commit crimes up here are coming from the United States. Now we find out that that's not true at all, that half the guns that are used to commit crimes here are actually from here. So how has that changed the discussion in Toronto? Well, today at Toronto City Council, before this uh, tragedy took place, it was, this was on the agenda. Toronto City Council is basically considering uh, a whole, what are they calling it, um, uh, a suite of anti-gun violence initiatives, is what a couple of councils are asking the entire city council to get behind. So essentially what they're looking for, Scott, is money, lots of money, to support new community services, uh, youth programs, employment programs that would help people who have been in gangs get new job or get jobs, something uh, that they're calling trauma recovery and mental health support. Uh, and they also want $15 million uh, to support enforcement and enhanced surveillance initiatives. Uh, so that's what politically happened today at city council. Uh, I don't know if you heard last week, but the Toronto police services board asked for four million dollars, I believe, in the province and the federal government, to introduce something called shot spotter. Have you heard about this at all? No, explain. So they're looking for this technology to be installed in Toronto. It's used in some American cities right now. The police would go in and install microphones in areas prone to gun violence. When shots are fired, police would be alerted, and then they would know to go to the area. So. It's controversial because is it Big Brother or mm. too much Big Brother? But they've asked for this $4 million. And again, it wouldn't be using, it's not Batman Dark Knight technology where everybody's cell phone is used. It's, we're going to install microphones. We're going to monitor those microphones for gunshots. So, I mean, all sorts of stuff mm. is being talked about right now. Uh, and I, I know that Hamilton's mayor is also behind those initiatives, tweeting out support, if I'm not mistaken, yesterday, I believe in an interview on CHML yesterday saying, we need to do more. Uh, Anything on the shooter's social media presence? Have we heard any, have we seen anything there, or heard of anything that that might uh, shed some light on any of this? No. I mean, isn't that surprising? The answer is no, uh, which is surprising, because of course, usually you see all sorts of reports within 24 hours of, uh, of somebody being identified. At this point, we have the family statement that was issued yesterday. And as far as I've seen, that's, that's all. Uh, not any hint of a manifesto at this point. Not a Facebook. I, I mean, I, I, I did hear one report uh, that he may have liked a page on Facebook or some form of social media supporting ISIS that's not confirmed. I want to be careful. Like, I... I, I, I it's not confirmed yet. There's, there's suggestions that he may have hit like on a page, I guess. But mm. as far as a footprint where we can say, hey, this is him. This is, we know that he posted this. Nothing yet, Scott. Uh, what about mood on street? What about the area? How are they recovering? 
I, I, I'm going to tell you this. This morning, uh, it, the, the Danforth was full. It was incredible to see. By lunchtime, I, I, it, all the restaurants are open. I, I decided to take a walk. Got yesterday, Mike Drolet and Global National put together a, a graphic that sort of showed how big this crime scene was. And it stretched over 300 meters. So I know 300 meters, what the heck does that mean as you're driving in your car or listening on radio? It took me five minutes to walk that stretch of Danforth. Hmm. Shots first rang out at an intersection called Logan and Danforth, and that's where a parkette is. And the yeah. shooter then continued down, turned into a uh, Dimitri Cafe, opened fire. He crossed the road, he looked into a second cup cafe, opened fire. Then he encountered police a short distance away uh, from there, and that's where this all ended. But I sat down, Scott, at that second cup, and I, it, I just started to do a little work there. And a couple of residents came up and said, hey, do you mind if we take a picture of that window that you're sitting next to? I was on the patio. Mm. And I'm like, yeah, sure, whatever. Well, it was sitting next to like one of those advertisement billboards that they had stuck to the window. And I didn't realize it was covering up two bullet holes. They pulled back the, the, the piece of cardboard. And sure enough, there's two bullet holes. But again, the workers there were thrilled to be back. Like they, they were so excited to be back at work because they, they wanted to be there. They, and the street was full. The second cup was busy. Um, really and truly, the memorials to the victims were there. And that there were no police officers, though. Um, so it was incredible how normal everything was. Uh, wow. Incredible. Uh, what a story. It is, uh, of course, uh, developing. And as we find out more, uh, Jason and the rest will uh, keep us updated. Jason Chapman has been with his executive producer, 640 Toronto. Jason, as always, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Yeah, right back at you, Scott. Thank you. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. How will what happened on the Danforth affect those living there? And more importantly, we're hearing um, from this uh, shooter, alleged shooter's family, that mental illness was a big part of this person's life. And, and, and how does that uh, change things uh, moving forward? We're about to bring in Steve Jordans, professor, Department of Psychology, University of Toronto. And uh, he sent us an interesting note when we asked him to speak on this uh, and said it's, it's nice, t- if it's doable, to dig a little deeper into the mental health part of this. And this is a note that he has sent us regarding his two cents. Uh, He says, mental health is a huge issue that is extremely complex with multifaceted uh, and is multifaceted. And most of it has nothing to do with violence towards others. Goes on to say, on average, those with mental health issues are less likely to commit violent acts, especially to others. So talking about mental health and violence at that level always seems a little like talking about some concept that is so big and vague that parts of it can be linked to anything. Uh, For example, mental unwellness has sometimes been considered uh, linked to uh, genius or artists in the past like Van Gogh, for example. Uh, Goes on to say, more relevant, I think, is social fit. For anyone to kill other humans in these sorts of ways, they have to either hate them or, at the very least, feel absolutely no connection to them at all. So their pain and suffering does not get through. How does such an extreme lack of empathy develop? It is likely a reflection um, off their own social connections. Almost always these 
these people were social misfits with few friends and general negative interactions with other human beings. Uh, They have very few social connections through a process that begins typically in childhood. Uh, Perhaps they are odd in some matter. The more general sense of mental health could be relevant here. They become social outcasts. They become socially and, in some cases, psychologically separated from other human beings. Humans, uh, Humans they see enjoying each other's company and being supportive of one another in a way nobody has been towards them. Combine this with frustration, anger, and some other emotional fuel, and they may choose to attack those who have made them a social outcast. This is obviously a generalization, but uh, interesting points nonetheless. And uh, that, of course, is uh, written to us from Steve Jordan's professor, Department of Psychology, University of Toronto, and is with us now. Steve, thank you for taking the time. We appreciate this. Yeah, thank you. Uh, we just read your note that you had sent to our producer, and, and very well put. Uh, the family is suggesting that he suffered from mental illness. Is this becoming, and I don't want to see, say this insensitively, but is this becoming a default position for those looking for answers? Is it fair to those who suffer from mental illness? Well, you know, I think it is. I think it is being used that way. But I think it's, you know, it's kind of like it's such a broad brush that to say, you know, it's due to mental illness is, is, I don't know, it's not quite like saying it's due to them breathing air or something because it's not that prevalent. But it doesn't really tell us a whole lot. It doesn't move the narrative or the understanding any further along. Uh, There are so many people who suffer from mental illness uh, and by and large, they are less violent than the population as a whole. So just, you know... Why are they less violent? Let's touch on that, because that was an interesting point in your note. Explain yeah. that. Well, I mean, that's just been, been generally shown, especially violence towards others. The, the major mental illness, of course, is depression, and, and often people who are depressed do violence to themselves um, at, at a you know scary rate. It can be a very high rate of suicide, for example, among depressed people. But as far as acting out against others... That's very, very uncommon. So, for example, like a a schizophrenic notion, a lot of the people you see on the streets are suffering from schizophrenia. And and typically one of the things you see with schizophrenia is a a lack of motivation um, and a lack of uh, just sort of doing things spontaneously. So these are not the kind of people that generally plan you know, these kinds of events and, and act on them and, and do those sorts of things um, unless, you know, very specific things come into play with respect to their mental illness. So so to me, it's just, I, I feel like people throw that term out there as though they've explained something, but they haven't really said anything. They haven't helped us really get to you know, what aspect of mental illness or, or how does that play out would uh, it in be, a situation? Would it be fair to say anyone who commits such an act probably does suffer from some sort of mental illness? Yeah, I mean, literally, if anyone who can kill especially a random human being, you know, we can think about crimes of passion and maybe there's a whole different story there, but but somebody who goes out and kills a random other person um, is experiencing a mental world very differently than, than most of us. Most of us would have um, things like empathy that kick in and, and may, would make it very hard for us to cause pain to another human being like that. And so the very fact that they can do that act um, in and of itself says, yes, there's something very different about their mental makeup than the average human being. If you are sample, suffering from some sort of mental illness like depression, as you were alluding to in, in this note that I yeah. just read, are you more likely 
to well you just said no you're not more likely to be violent i'm i'm trying <laughs> to say so something i'm trying to say something that isn't really even there um yeah. uh can you be persuaded can you be uh manipulated into doing something that perhaps isn't right how well, about if i come at it from that angle yeah so so i mean the the one um situation that i'll talk about and i i almost hate to talk about it because i think people believe this is um common when it when it's in fact very rare but um Schizophrenia especially, often people, or, or one symptom some people will suffer from schizophrenia is hearing voices, So, which sounds weird. We all hear voices, right? We all have voices in our heads. I have complete conversations with people in my head. Um, but when we hear voices in our heads, we somehow take ownership. That's us. That's our thoughts. That's whatever. Schizophrenics can feel like that voice is coming from somewhere or something else, which is already sort of, you know, mystic or, or metaphysical. And so they very often will think it's angels or it's, or it's some uh, spiritual being speaking to them. And in some cases, in very small number of cases, but in some cases, um, some of these schizophrenics have been convinced by the voices in their head that they should do some act that's actually a noble act. So the world has been, you know, overrun by demons and your you have been chosen by an angel to cleanse the demons from the world and so therefore you should go out. So we have a few instances like that where somebody committed an atrocious act but when we've kind of unpacked their mental illness they actually felt they were doing something righteous. Um, at the time. And, and, and that's where we have this issue of, of um, insanity defenses, where if somebody really doesn't realize at the time they're committing the act that the act is evil, wrong, um, that's a case where we might you know, choose a, a, a treatment option over a jailing option. But these are incredibly rare. And uh, I guess an issue of that would have been the person who attacked the other passenger on the Greyhound bus way back when? Yeah, perhaps. I mean, if you, if you can have these powerful delusions where you really become convinced um, of something that's true. And m- most of us have this amazing ability um, that we don't appreciate too much that we can separate the external world and stimulation we get from the external world from our fantasies and our thoughts and, and things happening in the internal world. In schizophrenia, that can go awry. And so people can have a thought or, or something that's going on in their head that they feel like that is true, that it's actually that they've gotten evidence from the external world, and they can become very confused over what's accurate and what's not accurate. And sometimes that plays out uh, as violence. So when you hear the news, as someone who's trained in this, when you hear the news that, that and, and obviously aware of, of the attack that happened in Toronto and, and how it unfolds, uh, affecting everyone who lives in that city, when you hear the family come out and say mental illness and that seems to be the narrative that's sticking, what's your reaction? Um, you know, I, I just feel like it's it's stopping when we shouldn't stop. It's it's putting a period on something without explaining anything. So, you know, when, when I think about it, and you hear about, about this, for example, in the gun violence in the States, where they'll say, they, they see, seem to have two options. One is we'll reduce access to guns, which they always forget about very quickly. Um, and the other one is, well, we'll pour funding into uh, mental health stuff. Mental health stuff can use a lot of funding, so so that's not a problem. Right. But but if you're going to pour a bunch of money just generally into mental health to reduce gun violence, which is such a small aspect of it, that's not very good. And instead, you know what I sometimes it's good to kind of think in the contrast where that note you read out a little bit. What I see as as more core and and 
um, the mental un- unwellness may have fit, fed into this, but a lot of these people literally become um, sort of put aside from the rest of society. They get pushed away. Hmm. And I think rather than just thinking mental illness is, you know, the danger, I think that social outcast status is a danger. And that's something we can detect. And that's something we can potentially try to reverse. Now, now I don't know how we do this, but... but I By being think, nicer to each other? Well, I mean, know, this is really the yeah. bullying syndrome when you think yeah. about it, right? I mean, it is. And, and that's almost every one of these perpetrators has been on the, on the wrong side of bullying. Uh, well, the wrong side. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> say yeah. The wrong side. I guess the wrong side is the bully. Yeah. But they've typically, and you know, and here is where, like, let's say they do have some depression or some anxiety issues or something like that. That can be enough as a child to make you the target of bullying, and that might be the the thing that makes you the social outcast. But to have that cold um, feeling towards other human beings that you need to commit an act like this, you 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 have to be separated from them somehow. And, and I think as society, sometimes we separate individuals and we have to be on, on the alert for that. And, and so I, I just think that way of talking, for example, is more actionable. It, it gives you a, a clearer idea, whereas saying mental health is just sort of general and vague. And we're certainly seeing that in the United States with their issues and and, and just their uh, unwillingness to make any sort of changes whatsoever. Yeah. Uh, President Trump said this. It's it's not about the NRA. It's about providing more money for mental health. I mean, he, he yeah. said that after the shooting in Vegas. Yeah. And, and again, that's, that's not a bad thing. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But, but it's a pretty... You know, it's a pretty vague solution. It's it's like. Yeah. Why are we jumping to this to, to this conclusion? Do you think just because it's a quick answer? Well, because those two things seem to come together, especially in the states, the the guns and you know this person who has a, a mental illness of some sort. So we see those two things combined, and you know, in Canada, we might be much more willing to to look at the gun part of the equation. In the states, they're not. So that leaves them with the other part. But but I think it's combined with this shallow, try to get a quick answer, um, a quick thing to blame, rather than, you know, taking the time to really unpack the story behind these people and, and what are the common threads and, and is there anything we can do about these threads uh, early on. It's, it takes a little more complexity, it takes a little bit more thought, um, but I think it ultimately could lead to more actionable uh, approaches that, that could be helpful. Do you think it's being used as a distraction? Uh, this this incident happened. Here we are two days later. We're still very limited, limited information at this point. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, do you think it's do you think it's officials trying to uh, uh, persuade people that this is not what they may think it is? Perhaps a terrorist attack? No, mm-hmm. it's just mental illness. No, don't worry. Nothing to worry about here. It's just mental illness. Yeah, I, I think there. It's certainly the case that the mind wants an explanation. Um, and for many years, we've had this nice sort of terrorist, nice terrorist narrative. This is the way we speak nowadays. But, yeah. but we've seen so many of these terrorist-motivated things that we know that narrative. And so we can connect to that quickly, and it gives us understanding. Um, in a case like the Las Vegas shooting especially, we still don't understand. And so, yeah, we can throw mental illness at it, um, and, and it, and it's a... It's a pseudo-understanding, and I think our mind does need some sort of pseudo-understanding. So I think in a case like this, it can give us something. But I'll sometimes say to my students, you look out the window and you see the leaves moving uh, on the trees. What's the cause of that? And their first answer will be wind. And you'll say, well, yeah, that's a word, 
that describes leaves blowing on a tree, but what's the cause of it? And in order to get at the cause, you have to talk about you know air masses and pressures, and you have to get to what wind actually is and how it's having the, the result you see. So that's what I kind of feel like when they just throw you know, mental health out there. Yes, it kind of gives us a way of, oh, okay, that's what it is. But we really don't understand. And, and I think sometimes, you know, making ourselves feel like we understand with one of these pseudo-vague words um, is harmful because maybe we'd be better to, to not feel like we understand and to, you know, go beyond that general term and, and mine it a little bit more. And deal with it, obviously. Yeah. yeah. Um, what about those that are affected by this because they live in the area, they work in the area? Obviously, this is a very famous street and there's lots yeah. of tourists there, but it's also a, a residential street. Yeah. How do those people move on? Yeah, it's probably even more, you know, if we think of a Dundas Square or Young Street or Front Street, those those are probably more the tourist area. Yeah. Greek Town is almost the area where locals, you know, will go out yeah. and have their celebrations and do their things. So it's very much one of our cities or one of our parts of the city. Um, and, yeah, it's one that we all know and most of us have pleasant memories. Um, so there, there are going to be all sorts of reactions, and a lot of it depends on, uh, how close somebody was both to that part of town and especially to the incident. So, I mean, we can get into a whole discussion of post-traumatic stress disorder. Th- those people who who literally felt like their lives were in danger at the time, they have a very different path um, of, of potential influence. So, so they could literally, uh, depending on the situation, end up with symptoms of post-traumatic stress disorder. The rest of us um, will we'll have this sort of association. The, these images that we see on TV, these things we hear, they, they're, they're very powerful. They, they stick in our minds very strongly, and, and they become associated now with this part of town. And, and so when we go into that part of town, we may have a rational mind saying, you know, this, this won't happen again, and it was very unlikely, and you know, all that stuff. But we'll probably feel a certain level of uh, anxiousness, um, literally our what's called our sympathetic nervous system, that's the one that prepares us to fight or flee. It will likely become a little bit active, and, and we, we will feel a little on edge. Um, that, that'll become overcome over time with more pleasant memories kind of laid on top of that. Um, but I think we'll all feel that, especially in Greektown, where those stimuli, when we see those streets, it'll trigger the memories. And we also may feel a little bit more anywhere in Toronto. Um, this is a, another story, another of a string. And in fact, if we go to the summer of the gun, you know, there's mm. been quite a few events in Toronto that never occurred before that summer and that we could never kind of bring to mind. And, and now suddenly we can bring to mind a lot of these events that are associated with different parts of our city. And that can't help but make us feel that our city isn't as safe as it, as it once was. And, and in fact, that's a, a sort of natural process. When we try to think how safe is it, we pull memories into our mind. And if we can pull up all these memories of unsafety, then it tends to make us overestimate how unsafe the city is. The more it happens, do we become numb to it? Um, th- there is suggestion that if, that if these random things happen often enough, and, and I think a lot of the literature from this is from Israel, where, you know, especially in, in some of the worst times when there were a lot of bus bombings and a lot of things, where it does seem like the population has become 
um, a, a little bit more. I mean, we're all like this with, say, cancer or, or health issues of certain sort, sorts. We know, you know, we could be diagnosed with Lou Gehrig's disease tomorrow, and, and these things can hit anybody at any time. We can do what we can to prevent them, but by and large, there are just things that happen in life. And that was apparently the mentality that was common in Israel at the time, that, you know, you don't change your lifestyle. You don't put up more barriers. You don't have higher security. You just accept that this happens, mm-hmm. um, and and you become very good at dealing with it when it happens, um, and 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 yeah, it's it's part of life. So, the, our brain is certainly capable of that. I think in Toronto we're having trouble with that because um, uh, this just doesn't feel. Uh, we felt we were immune. We we felt we weren't the kind of city where we would have gang violence and where we'd have random violence. And and I think we're all there's a sort of coming of age happening here where where some of our naivety is being stripped away, and I, and I don't think any of us like the feeling of that. Um, Steve yeah. Jordans has been with us, professor at Department of Psychology, University of Toronto. Steve, fascinating discussion. Thanks so much for the time. Much appreciated. No problem. Thank you. Have a great day. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. New allegations, not new allegations, but further to the allegations with Headley frontman Jacob uh, Hogard and his... Uh, obviously uh, been charged with sexual offenses. We'll talk about that, Toronto, and anything else that, uh, of course, comes to mind. Alyssa Freeman is joining us, public relations consultant, uh, principal at Alyssa Freeman PR. She is with us now. Alyssa, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. As always, Scott. All right, let's start Let's start and talk about uh, Toronto and what's going on there and the feeling in that city. Um, my impression watching this from afar is there doesn't seem to be a lot of information coming out uh, at this point. Uh, the family has told us that the shooter has suffered or suffered from mental illness, uh, a lifelong uh, uh, fight with mental illness and such, but that's pretty much uh, all that we've had. I had an interesting ch- uh, chat with Steve Jordan, professor Department of Psychology, University of Toronto, and he shares my concern that mental illness is becoming a default position whenever anything like this happens. Again, I don't want to be insensitive. I I, I don't want to not point at the obvious. But are we using this as an excuse rather than a solution? You know, that's a real touchy one, Scott. It is a touchy one. I'm almost afraid to touch it. Uh, You know, you can use mental illness as a mitigating factor if there is backup to the description. Now, in this case, you know, I realize that some people think it's a, it's a bit of a default and an accepted default, which is why maybe people trot it out more often than not. But in this case, you know, well, there was the note from the family, which I know we're going to discuss. There was that very, what I felt was a candid interview with a friend of his who said that he thought he was turning his life around. He had gotten a job at a grocery store, but you know, was really surprised at the outcome. So in this case, it's really hard to say. Um, but mental illness has been a default for a lot of crimes over decades, hmm. decades and decades. You know, would you rather go to some facility or do you want to spend your time in jail? So I can imagine that question gets asked a lot. In this case, I think that it's, if it's warranted and that if there is backup and if there are doctors who can... Um, provide backup, and, you know, if there's a bit of a paper trail that, um, you know, that creates uh, some sense of truth to the matter, then yes, you can, you know, you can use it. 
But just using it as a default and as a catch-all is, I think, what some people are wondering. Plus, I think it's pretty safe to say that anybody who commits such an act has some sort of mental health issue. Well, you know, they have to. And I think that the big question for me, Scott, here is, you know, where did he get the gun? That's and my next he, question. How and, does and how does a person with... Was, this how, is not somebody who picked up a gun for the first time. No, and how does a person with this kind of condition get a gun? And and I think that what's happening here now is that creating stricter gun laws within this city is something that has been put on the back burner um, at City Hall. But, you know, unlike Sandy Hook and, and every other uh, horrible tragedy that has happened in a, either in a school or a public place in the United States, it seems that this is really spurring our council into action and that we have to do something about this sooner than later rather than, you know, sort of arguing about the minutiae and other details which, you know, can, can bog anything down in, in government no matter what level. So, you know, it's interesting to see how this spurs the, the many wheels of communication and non-communication. Hmm. I think the other thing that's, you know, worth talking about is, A, how quickly that letter from the family came out. And, I mean, it was quick. Why? How do you? How, what's your explanation to that? Well, because you know, again, because everybody's do... painting themselves. Everybody's painting this narrative, and this is really the only information we have. Police have not said either way. Well, I have to like. Let's back up a little bit. Let's talk about how the police and also how the media is reporting on this. And I've noticed that unfortunately we've now done this once or twice before. So, the media has tended not to create stories per se, but instead what I call sort of like factums or backgrounders. The copy is bullet point. It's just a a number of facts, um, not really strung together by any prose, but just sort of giving you an outline and keeping you up to date as they become updated. So, you know, the web has dictated uh, a certain type of style or journalistic style that is now used in these really fluid situations. So I think that that is actually quite interesting. The second thing that I, I find interesting is that when they had the SIU spokeswoman on um, and the way she was, I'm trying to think, was this woman on a teleprompter? I mean, she was either, she, either that or she was just really well briefed on the situation and her um, delivery was very also um, bullet pointed. So, you know, it was this. He was he was shot. He sustained a shot. No idea whether he shot himself or right. he was shot at. But what they what she did was that she gave almost like you know three minutes of a timeline rundown of what happened. And in terms of crisis communications, that's the first thing that you you need to give or you need to know. Or if you're going to give the public any information, that's what you're going to give them. So you don't want to be seen as not giving away all your information. I mean, this is a police investigation, for heaven's sakes, and the public shouldn't be privy to every salient detail. But by and large, I felt that her delivery of sort of just the facts was really, really well done. Uh, so, as you mentioned earlier, uh, sorry, did you want to finish your point there? No, no, go ahead. Uh, as you mentioned earlier, he seemed experienced. Uh, many have looked at this at this videotape and said, well, there's this part that looks experienced, there's this part that doesn't look experienced. That being said, it, it's pretty obvious this person had handled a gun before, knew how to use it in this type of situation, knew how to reload it in this type of situation. I don't know. There seems to be more to this story than just mental health. 
Well, there just might be. And I think that the reloading was a big clue for all of us who are amateur detectives or armchair detectives. You know, what the eyewitnesses said was that he was able to change the clip with precision and speed. Mm. Now, I certainly never shot a gun, but if somebody gave it to me and I finished my round, I don't think I'd be so quick in changing the magazine or changing the clip, right? Yeah. And and I may not even be using the right terminology here. So there there is something to be said for that. You know, there's three sides to every story, Scott. Right now, we sort of have one, and we sort of have a, another half of it from the family. But I think what I found interesting also was the speed at which that family statement came out. It came out fast. And normally, you don't get a family statement until 24 hours after when you are when you sort of know more, a little bit more what's going on. So what on. does that say to you? Well, you know, um, the the shooter's father uh, was quite renowned within uh, his community and I think founded a mosque in his community and may have been a little bit more cognizant of, okay, this has happened, we need to get a statement out fast because I think we need to to tell the public our side of the story, to create a narrative about our son, and try and control that narrative until more facts are found out. And you know that the cops are going over there and taking all the computers and taking all the phones and, and, and taking everything. So by putting out a statement fast, what that does is it gives you a chance to, quote-unquote, control the narrative in the short term. Your son is dead, and he's already taken out however many people. How can that be top of mind? You're working with somebody else, or somebody else has contacted you, uh, an expert has contacted you that you know, that you trust, and said you need to get a statement out fast because there's going to be all sorts of conjecture about your son. It seems way too... They're going to say that. It sounds way too organized than mental illness. Well, but that's the organization of getting a statement out with respect to his mental illness. I don't think you can equate the two. I really don't. I think that this is all about controlling the narrative and that creating a scenario about mental illness certainly gives the media and others something to talk about until the facts do come out. But right now, you know, first out is the one that everybody talks about, okay? So, you know, right now, everybody's talking about how he was mentally ill, how his sister had died, and I think another relative had died, and he just kind of snapped. And I think that people can buy that, Mm. but for me, I think that you can snap and maybe take three weeks of gun lessons and practicing how to reload a gun. Yeah. So yeah. I, I don't know, but putting out that statement, as soon we heard his name, and then the family statement came out minutes, minutes later. And do we know who from the family it came from? Because, again, the family situation is quite different in the sense that some are sick, some have passed. It's, it's not a, a typical scenario there. It may have been led by the dad or the father. It may have been. I don't even want to speculate, Scott. I mean, who knows who it came from? It was written by somebody else, this mm-hmm. I'll tell you. Or it was dictated and crafted. So this wasn't done in five minutes. Statements aren't done in five minutes, no matter how good you are. And something great, that, uh, that, that says that something bigger is at stake here than just the loss of your son or the other people that were innocent victims. Well, if the dad is a, an imam, as, as I understand it, you know, there's a reputational thing going on here. So I think as any religious or spiritual leader, people go to him for counsel for a number of different things. Mm. So who knows what his, his, his congregants have talked to him about, but maybe it was about you know, family situations such as his. You know, be that as it may, maybe they're talking about reputation, maybe they're considering reputational damage here, and they're also considering uh, narrative control, and I think it's a bit of both. 
surprised at that? You must be. Obviously, you are. I mean, it just seems odd considering the family's lost a, a member and, and there's this horrific act. It just seems that that would not be a priority. I almost think that, you know, you can look at this two ways. You can look at it as being desensitized, that people know the drill now. Once there has been mass shootings, they know yeah. the drill. Somebody is accused and then somebody has a story or the media digs up everything they can by looking on their Facebook pages and creating a narrative about that one person. So, you know, you can prevent the going to look up Facebook pages right away at least by sort of following a very textbook example of how to control the message. This is really textbook for, you know, somebody's son who was just murdered. Somebody was thinking really clearly, Hmm. or perhaps they had other motives. I don't know. But in terms of crisis communications, coming out with a holding statement, which which is what this is until further details do come out from the investigation, um, coming out with a holding statement is a really smart strategy. I'm just surprised that a family who's reeling, for, reeling with grief hmm. was able to execute so quickly. Exactly. All right, let's move on. Headley frontman Jacob Hogart has been charged three sexual offenses uh, involving women. He's expected to be in court on Thursday. Are you surprised we haven't heard more of this, the Me Too movement and, and other dominoes to fall? Well, you mean surprised we haven't heard more about Headley or more about others? More about others. I mean, I guess we knew that this was coming and and, and eventually would get to this point, so no surprises there. Uh, When this band, though, uh, made the headlines with this, everybody thought, well, it's a music industry, sex, drugs, and rock and roll. Is it? Well, I think that's what we all thought, and then maybe you know some of it was consensual and some of it wasn't. I think that where we are with this movement is that you know you heard a whisper and somebody's reputation was up in flames. Now I think that as we're into or further along with this movement, um, that I, I feel that there's a greater bar for justification rather than just screaming me too. So if you take the case of Headley, there was one woman, I think there was maybe two women. But then now there seems to be an avalanche of women coming out saying, well, it was me too, me too. Same thing with Bill Cosby. You heard about one, you heard about two, and then there was like 35, all with the same story. So once you get more than one or even more than two to corroborate behavior, the bar is behavior that, the bar is, I think, higher in terms of uh, making an accusation that one-offs are not going to play in the court of a public opinion anymore, but there has to be more substantial evidence of what went on. You know, when you look at the um, ESPY Awards for ESPN, and they made this big show, I think they all won the Arthur Ashe, uh, some sort of Arthur Ashe Citizenship Award, I don't know the exact name of it, it was regarding Me Too. It was the sports world acknowledging uh, Me Too exists, knowing full well you know, the stories that you hear of what happens when athletes go on the road. Yes, there are groupies. You know, yes, there may be consensual, some, you know, consensual sex, but there also may not be either. So here the ESPYs make this big show of Me Too, but it wasn't one, it wasn't five as, as that were at, at the Academy Awards. There must have been like 150 women on stage. So I think people are looking for more substantive evidence when it comes to Me Too, and especially when it comes to working over somebody's reputation. What about the music industry? Uh, we talked about when all of this was going down uh, in the last several months, how this has, changed, has, this has changed protocol or certainly reinforced protocol in HR departments. What about in the music industry? Well, are, are they I, I, at least not covering their rear ends on this? No pun intended. 
Well, I think with any industry and with any company, the first thing you have to do is you have to make sure your employees know what sexual harassment means. And, I mean, that sounds really easy for you and I, Scott. We talk about it all the time. But there are some people who don't understand that making a crack or talking uh, unsolicited about a woman's or a man's body is inappropriate. So companies, no matter whether it's a music company or industry or anything, any corporation with a large amount of staff needs to make very clear that what the harassment policy is. And now what they're doing is that they're um, creating sessions where groups of employees are taken through the harassment policy and they're made to sign it. So if you're going to sit there and daydream throughout the policy discussion and you engage (laughs) in an infraction, you're up the creek because you signed off. Hmm. So people have to understand what is the definition of sexual harassment. I'm sure that there's a baseline that most companies use. And I think that just just because rock and roll has had a reputation of sex, drugs, and rock and roll and anything goes, and it has been perpetuated for decades, decades, it doesn't mean that just because this is what it was that this made it okay. And in many times, maybe it was consensual, and in many times, maybe it wasn't. So I'm not giving any industry a pass just because it was a perpetuating philosophy that it was okay to engage in such behavior, to be quite honest. Uh, have times changed? Can we still view those past incidents, incidences through today's lens? Sure you can. I mean, but there are some people who say, well, that was then and this is now. I'm not sure what that means. Um, well, know, it's different say, now. You can't get, a, you know, people... Well, you know what, that you can't get away with it? That's exactly what it is. the nature of the charge. Yeah. So, well, mm. You know, so there's nothing... If you sexually assault somebody and get away with it and you don't get away with it now, it's just it means that more eyes are looking hmm. and that people feel more empowered yeah. to speak up, mm-hmm. whether they're straight or they're gay or whatever. I mean, an assault is an assault. So I think the difference is, Scott, is that nobody would want to speak up. And then I think in industries where all you want to do is be an actress and all you want to do is be a singer and you still have to play by the rules of the game, well, you have a choice. So either you think it's really important to do that or you decide not to and switch gears, even if it means crushing your dream. So uh, I think that you know we hear a lot about that when these things come up. Um, I don't know. Uh, I, I just don't think. I think that, the yes, you can look at it with the same lens, but it's also a lot more people looking through that lens right now. Alyssa Freeman has been with us, public relations consultant. Uh, Alyssa Freeman PR. She's the principal there. Alyssa, as always, thank you for the time. Much appreciated. Thanks for having me, Scott. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML.